Thank you for joining us for Friends and Followers, a podcast brought to you by the Seton Shrine, where stories of those who were inspired by Mother Seton's life and mission are shared. It is our hope that you might find inspiration as well, and a deeper understanding about who Elizabeth Nancy is. And you can subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes. We hope that you enjoyed them. Thank you. So thank you for joining us today. Today, um, I actually have two special guests. <laughs> I have Becca Corbell, who is everything worship here at the Shrine. She manages anything that happens having to do with the Basilica or retreats, anything with the masses. And so she is my guest today because she has arranged for us to talk to Bishop Laurie, who is a big fan of James Roosevelt Bailey, Mother Seton's nephew, who became the eighth Archbishop of Baltimore. Yes, I am very excited to be on the <laughs> Friends and Followers podcast. I'm a big subscriber. Um, I listen to all the, the episodes. Yeah, and I, I love what you and Bridget do. So I'm a humble replacement this week <laughs> for Bridget Bassler. Um, but at the feast day, at Mother Seton's feast day this past year in 2020, Archbishop Lori um, told me for a very long time all about Archbishop Bailey, his devotion to Archbishop Bailey, and obviously to Mother Seton. And so I have asked him to come on the podcast that I love and talk to us about Archbishop Bailey. Yeah. So let's get started. Hope you enjoy. Hello. Hello, Archbishop. Yes. This is Becca Corbell at the Seton Shrine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm with Lisa Donahue, one of our researchers here. Good morning. Good morning. We are so excited to talk to you. (laughs) Thank you for making time for this. Sure. Are you doing well? I'm doing fine, thank you. Good. Very, very well, thank you. Good, good, good. So one of the things I do here um, is record podcasts, and uh-huh. we are talking about people that were in Elizabeth Ann Seton's life, I guess you could say, because they're friends of hers, but they're also people that have followed her. And one of them that I was really anxious to do was James Roosevelt Bailey. Uh-huh. And um, Becca had shared with me that you're also a fan of his. So we thought it'd be kind of cool to talk to you about that and why he inspires you. Mm -hmm. How did you come across him, Archbishop? Well, uh, Archbishop Bailey would be, of course, um, one of my uh, my predecessors. He would have um, been the... um, he would have been the eighth Archbishop of Baltimore. He would have served as the Archbishop of Baltimore from 1872 until his death in 1877. And um, he's a very, it's a very interesting life. And um, during uh, COVID, as, um, as happened so often, I had a little extra time and uh, I spent a little time uh, reading more about him, mm-hmm. and and he has it was a very interesting life and a very productive life, I might add. Mm. So I'll I'll be honest, I'm probably the novice in this conversation. <laughs> I don't know a ton about him. Well, I could give you a a little bit of information about him, and then maybe also speak uh, more specifically about his uh, um, relationship uh, to his uh, to his aunt 
who was, of course, St. Elizabeth and Bailey Seton. That's so I think, yeah. I, think that's, I think that's the connection here yes. uh, with the Seton Shrine. Yes, yes. Yeah. That would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. that's perfect. Well, um, so he was born, uh, Archbishop Bailey was born um, uh, like like St. Elizabeth Van Seton into really the same prominent family uh, in 1814, and um, he grew up um, as as a Protestant. He was born in eight, and um, he, so I think that Saint Elizabeth Ann Bailey Seton was his father's half sister. Yes, that's and correct. he was also a cousin to uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Mm, yes. And um, of course, he was born. He died before Franklin Roosevelt mm. was born, but he would have been Franklin Roosevelt's uh, cousin also. Yes. Yeah. And um, uh, his father was a prominent uh, physician in in New York. And the first thought for uh, James Roosevelt Bailey is that he would be a, a physician. Mm -hmm. um, as he began to study physician, he he switched to 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 the ministry. Mm. So he went to um, Amherst, and I think he went to Trinity College mm -hmm. in, in Hartford. Yeah. Um, but uh, he began to feel the call to ministry. And he studied under a, a fairly extraordinary uh, scholar in Connecticut, um, a fellow named Samuel Farmer Jarvis in Middleton, Connecticut. And uh, he had a tremendous library hmm. uh, full of patristic works. And um, young um, James Roosevelt Bailey apparently had an inquiring mind and he read deeply mm. into uh, the patristic writings. Uh, it's not an exact parallel with, with uh, John Henry Newman, mm. but there is, uh, shall we say, a Newman-esque overtone there. Sure, yeah. uh, and so he was ordained uh, an Episcopal priest in 1840. Um, I think he was sent to Harlem, uh, St. Andrews, as a, as a pastor. Mm -hmm. and um, But his reading of the Church Fathers, going back to his days in Middleton, Connecticut, stuck with him. Mm -hmm. And he began to um, think about what path he should take and mm -hmm. began to have some doubts that uh, perhaps the claims of uh, apostolicity that his that his um, church was making were totally founded, mm. and that led him to um, to consider converting. And it was was the case with Mother Seton. It wasn't going over terribly well with the family. Mm. 
and yeah, that's uh, probably an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, they say that his grandfather sent him over to Rome, and figuring that if he went to Rome and saw, uh, you know, um, uh, how Rome was the modern reincarnation of Sodom and Gomorrah, ah. he, <laughs> he would certainly see the error yeah. of converting that, yeah. to Catholicism. But as happened so often, uh, the, the opposite effect took mm. place. He uh, surely, sorry, he, he uh, made his way around Rome uh, quite effectively, and he was taken by by what he saw, and um, and he was uh, received into the church at the Jesu in, in mm. 1842. So it's a remarkable conversion story. And um, he attributes his conversion uh, to the prayers of Mother Seton. Yes, interesting. Um, yeah. uh, in a couple of conversations, he did that. Um, his, he wrote to his cousin Kate. I think she was a religious sister. I think she was actually Sister Catherine. Yes, she was. She well at that time though, I think when they first started writing in the early eighteen forties, she was she was discerning what to do. So their letters back and forth are really interesting. Both of them kind of trying to figure this out. But yeah, she eventually becomes a sister of mercy. She does. Well, so he writes to her and and, and, and tells her that after he's converted that he attributes it to the prayers of uh, of her mother. Um of course, Elizabeth Ann Seton. And um, he says that numerous times, mm -hmm. I think. Um, I think he's talking to uh, a man named William Elder mm -hmm. um, in the 1860s, 18, uh, not 1840, 1840-something, 1843. I think Elder became uh, the second Archbishop of Cincinnati, if I'm thinking right. Hmm. Anyway, oh, um, right. um, he yeah. tells um, the future Archbishop uh, um, William Elder that his conversion was a result of her prayers and that he was thinking about, you know, doing a kind of a biography of, of, mm. of, his, of his aunt. So um, I think that uh, that, that just beginning with his conversion, it's a tremendously uh, interesting story. I would agree. Wow. Yeah. It's so, it's kind of poetic too, that he was writing to the second Archbishop of Cincinnati, because at that time there would have been Sisters of Charity in Cincinnati as well, Mother Seton's community. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So just how the, the network oh, kind of yeah, spread. Kind yeah. Of, and circles around. Yeah. I mean, just his relationship with Catherine, Mother Seton's daughter too, was really kind of neat because she's with Father Dubois when he dies in New York and mm -hmm. she writes James Roosevelt Bailey about it. And so and I think they were very close, which is nice. Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, um, um, James Roosevelt Bailey attributes the conversion of his brother William mm -hmm. also to the prayers of his aunt. Yeah. But it should also be said, I think, that uh, that uh, 
James Roosevelt Bailey was very instrumental in his brother's conversion. Mm. Um, He did a lot to encourage William or Willie, as I think they called him, Mm -hmm. uh, to convert. He didn't convert till near the end. I think he died circa 1870 or so. Yeah, it was the late 1860s, I think. I could be wrong. I'm I'm obviously an amateur at this. No, I think you're right. And also what was interesting is one of Elizabeth's granddaughters. So Mm -hmm. the way that I've heard this story is her son, William, who had eight children that lived to adulthood, his wife was not Catholic. And they had decided that the girls would be raised not Catholic and the boys would be raised Catholic. But all the girls Mm -hmm. ended up converting. And one of the girls, Elizabeth, that was named after her grandmother, converted at the same time. William, James yeah. Bailey's brother, converted. They entered the church together. So yeah, it's <laughs> really interesting, isn't it? But I, I, I do think that that uh, Mother Seton had a huge influence uh, on 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 my predecessor, on Archbishop Bailey. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's also, um, you know, he be, became a uh, he studied for the priesthood almost immediately after his conversion mm. and studied uh, with the Sulpician Fathers uh, over in, uh, in in France and um, was was ordained in, uh, to the Catholic priesthood in 1844. It was a pretty fast track, I think we would, we would say. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he moved up the ranks pretty fast. He... Uh, <laughs> was uh, vice rector of St. John's College, which of course became Fordham mm-hmm. University. And um, I think he was involved in transferring that uh, wow. to, to the Jesuits. Uh, I think he was um, also, um, is a pastor in the Archdiocese of New York and um, became secretary to Archbishop uh, John Hughes, uh, Dagger John. Yeah. He became <laughs> Dagger yeah. John's secretary. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, so obviously- you, I hope they don't call you Dagger <laughs> Lori, you know. Dagger no, I'm very careful on how I make the, cruci- the little cross in front of my name. I, I, it's, it's very, it does look nothing like a dagger. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, it's pretty amazing of what he did. And um, I think that he was um, obviously recognized as a man who was um, keenly intelligent, Mm. but also uh, a genuinely good person. I think Mm. when you read about him, you get the sense uh, that he was a person who truly uh, sought the truth and he pursued the truth even when it was uh, costly and inconvenient uh, to do so, uh, and that whatever he did for the church, he put his heart and soul into it. Yeah, I think you, that's um, that's he, one lesson, another lesson I draw from his life. I can imagine how that would be such a inspiration to you in yeah. your ministry. I mean, when he was in New Jersey, I was impressed. Like, he changed the whole scenery there like he brought so much to that diocese he did he's the first uh, bishop of newark um he i think 
went to the first plenary council of Baltimore. One of the things Mm. they recommended at that council is that they establish a diocese in New Jersey. Well, lo and behold, um, he was chosen to be the first uh, bishop of of Newark, um, I think, 1853. Well, there wasn't a lot in New Jersey. It was a very small Catholic population. It was, of course, the diocese encompassed the whole state of New Jersey at the time. Um, But there was a lot of immigration going on and a lot of growth. Uh, And um, uh, as as the first bishop of uh, Newark, he really put a shoulder to the wheel and founded all kinds of uh, uh, you know, parishes and schools. And interestingly enough, um, in the late 1850s, mid to late 1850s, decided to start a college. And um, you might wonder, you know, when you're just kind of getting your diocese off the ground, why you would want to found a college. But I think he saw the need um, to have uh, such an institution in his diocese mm. and to have a place uh, where um, where people uh, could a- attain a higher education, a place also that uh, uh, could support the seminary he intended to found, which was Immaculate Conception. Mm-hmm. And so he founds this college, which is of course today Seton Hall University. Mm-hmm. He names it after his aunt. And he founds it in um, Madison, uh, um, Madison, New Jersey. And um, and it's pretty small to begin with. But by and by, I think uh, more ample property and more donors um, come into view. And he buys the property in West Orange, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Meantime, um, wants to have a New Jersey branch of the Sisters of Charity. Mm-hmm. And so invites them in and gives them uh, the property in Madison to be their mother house, if I'm thinking yeah. correctly yeah. about this. Yes, yes, you are. And so here he is. He, he na- this is his big endeavor. This has got to be one of the major endeavors uh, in his Years in Newark, he loved being the Bishop of Newark, by the way. Uh, that was the joy of his life. He, he had his, his health, his energy. Um, he went all over the place by train and carriage and probably horseback. Um, but founding Seton Hall was big, and didn't he name it after his aunt? Yeah. And I think that shows... A great, great devotion to to Mother C. Absolutely, yeah, I would agree. And then, even when he went to when he came to Baltimore, he was only there for a few years. But I think, if I'm correct, like he paid off the um, cathedral and and did a lot there in just a few short years. He did. So he comes to Baltimore uh, in the post Civil War years, and um, he's not really happy about coming to Baltimore. I hate to say that as, as one of his successors, but he really wasn't. Uh, I think he 
um, in the Baltimore was uh, was uh, an industrial town. Yeah. Um, I think he felt that the mid-Atlantic weather <laughs> was not as um, as uh, healthful as the, the weather in New Jersey. That sounds kind of odd for us to hear today, <laughs> but that's certainly how he felt. I think what we celebrate as the inner harbor today was not a very healthy scene down at the harbor. And, um, and, and what, what is Jones Falls? I think a lot of that probably wasn't very healthy in those days. So he wasn't really thrilled about it. Plus, uh, he had um, more uh, territory to cover. Mm -hmm. The archdiocese in those days covered the whole state of Maryland, except for the eastern shore. Mm -hmm. It included um, uh, Washington, D.C., and he was, in effect, the primate of the United States and had um, a, a much heavier burden. And I think he felt fewer resources. He, one of the things he, he um, uh, felt was that the uh, people in Maryland were not nearly as generous as the people had been in New Jersey. Hmm. Um, and he actually wrote a letter about that. And I, I, I assure you, I would hesitate to write such a letter. <laughs> yeah, but probably he, he not wrote, a model for a fundraising letter. <laughs> yeah, I, I think today, you know, community counseling services would advise you not to write such a letter. But <laughs> sure. So that's a, that's another a, matter. But as you're very correct, he uh, paid off the um, the cathedral. The cathedral was then about fifty five years old or so. It was 1876, so it was 55 years old. And uh, he finally paid it off and actually um, consecrated it. Marischal wow. dedicated it, blessed it, I suppose you would say, but 200 years ago. But it was really um, Archbishop Bailey uh, who consecrated it after he paid it off. And that's what you find in the Ordo today. Oh, okay. That's how they, they list it. Nonetheless, we're, we, we celebrated, uh, we're celebrating this year its completion mm -hmm. and its blessing by, by, by Marischal. Mm, okay. um, so he, he did that. And of course, he, uh, he visited, even before he was the Archbishop of Baltimore, he visited up in uh, Emmitsburg. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, when he was in Fordham, uh, I think in the 1840s, he went to uh, to Emmitsburg and toured the uh, the permit. He went from the mountain to the valley and he uh, addressed the sisters. And uh, I think he uh, um, demonstrated already. He also went visited the, I guess what we call today the White House yes. <laughs> and and was there in the uh, the room where Mother Seton died and visited her grave and um, I think uh, uh, so I think he demonstrated a, a great deal of and then of course um, when he was Archbishop of Baltimore I think 
he um, requested at that point to be buried uh, at the feet of Mother Seton, as he put it. Mm. And he didn't want a big monument or anything. He just wanted a, a slab that marked where he was buried so the sisters would have to pray for him. He figured that they'd visit her grave often. So when they saw his slab, they'd have to pray for him too. As you're telling me his life, he just sounds like such a man of incredible foresight. Yeah. Founding the school and knowing that they would need that and paying off the cathedral and knowing that the diocese would be healthier. And then even in eternal life, Knowing, a, oh, yeah, sisters smart, for years move, to yeah. come, yeah, we'll be praying here. Yeah. I, what yeah. I, you know, what I find kind of cool about him is, is, as far as I can tell, he never met her. Like, even though he was mm-hmm. seven when she passed away, mm-hmm. as far as I know, they never made the trip here. I think she still continued to write her siblings. Um, but yet, mm-hmm. when you read his letters of coming here, it's he feels that loss. Like, it's mm. like he did know yeah. her, um, yeah. you know, and felt close to her, which I think is kind of neat, um, especially that he wanted yeah. to be buried here near her. Yeah, I think so. It's uh, it's really very touching the way mm. he, um, his devotion to her throughout his life. He also went um, at one point, um, I guess he was still the Bishop of Newark, and he went out to uh, uh, to Notre Dame, and I think he went through the papers of Simon Brute. Mm. Yes. Uh, now, some dispute whether whether Notre Dame had all of Simon Brute's papers or whether some of them were in the Archdiocese of New York. But he did go through the papers, and one of the things he was, and he of course wrote a book about yeah. Simon Brute, but he was also looking for information there about Mother Seton, because of course Simon Brute had been Mother Seton's spiritual director. Right. So he, he, there's a sense that to, on a, as busy as he was as a bishop and, uh, and, and, and as a priest, and as involved as he was in not only affairs of of his diocese, but also Rome uh, uh, and the First Vatican Council and all of those things. Um, Through much of his life, he was sort of on the hunt for um, information and more and more knowledge uh, about his his aunt. I think that could be said without fear of contradiction. So I I have a couple questions. The first one, if I'm, and I could be wrong about this, but I think Cardinal Gibbons was after him. Yes. Um, do you think, because I think Cardinal Gibbons was one of the first um, to really bring up Elizabeth Ann Seton's sainthood. Um, do you think that um, Archbishop Bailey had any influence on that? I know that they were there together for a while. Um, I'm just wondering. They, they would have known each other very well. Um, um Bailey, uh, Archbishop Bailey, wanted uh, Gibbons to be his coadjutor. And that I think um, the Archbishop, Archbishop Bailey had Bright's disease. And I think he, he really struggled uh, the last um, the last 
years of his service there. And uh, he highly regarded um, then Bishop Gibbons, who was, Mm. I think at the time, the Bishop of Richmond, Mm. and um, wanted him very much uh, to come here. Um, And I think because of their relationship, I don't think it's uh, uh, wrong to infer that uh, Archbishop Bailey uh, would have influenced uh, Gibbon's own um, decision to begin, really begin sort of the cult around uh, Mother Seton and, and the remote preparations for her beatification and canonization. Yeah, I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing I wanted to bring up was, as you had stated, that um, Archbishop Bailey wrote a book about Father Brute. So in my research, I noticed that they both um, copied letters of Elizabeth that had to do, it was to George Weiss, actually, who lived in Baltimore, um, had to do with her complete um, submission to the will of God. And Mm -hmm. I know Brute actually drew a sketch along with that letter of Mother Seton um, submitting to the will of God. But um, is that something that has impressed you about Archbishop Bailey, just that he seemed to want to follow in that same path as his aunt did? Yes, I, I think I think that was very, very true. I think his conversion hinged on seeking the will of God. I think his vocation as a priest and his um, readiness to do what the church asked of him all spoke to that same devotion uh, to the will of God. Now, he was, um, there's a a great deal of of humanity about uh, Archbishop Bailey. So you will find, um, you will find uh, references in his writings, I think, that he was not, as I mentioned earlier, not entirely happy about coming to Baltimore. Um, He he there's he complained about it a little bit. He called it at one point uh, that Baltimore business, <laughs> referring to his <laughs> his assignment here. But you'd have to say once he got here, even though his health was declining, he gave it all he got. And that to me speaks about wanting to do the will of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's another reason why I think um, someone in, in, in who is fo- follows him and is you know building on his his work, God willing, mm. um, you know, but but draw inspiration from his Absolutely. from his life. Of course, he's sandwiched in between Spalding, uh, who was. Um, you know, um, quite the outgoing character, the lecturer, the writer, um, and 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 relished his role as Archbishop of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And Gibbons, who held the position for 44 years. Yeah. yeah. So Archbishop Bailey is sandwiched between the two. Um, he's in post-bellum Baltimore, which was a kind of a challenging time to be here. Sure. And um, and so the, he c- 
could easily be lost in the historical shuffle. And I don't think that should be the case. I think, uh, I think his life deserves to be uh, uh, highlighted and studied more. And it's been studied to some extent, but I think it could be studied more. So do you think he has strengthened your um, relationship, I guess, with Elizabeth Ann Seaton, like kind of seeing it through his eyes? Well, most assuredly, um, I, I think that, um, that uh, his love and devotion to his aunt, uh, I can't claim any familial relations, but I, it does resonate with me uh, for, for two big reasons. Um, one is because, of course, I, I went, I'm an alumnus of Mount St. Mary's Seminary. Mm -hmm. And uh, devotion to Mother Seton um, sort of begins on day one, you know, when you enter the seminary there. First thing I did, I don't think I was unpacked. And I went over to uh, the Seton Shrine. And uh, in those days, uh, it was before she was canonized. But the first thing we did was to take the tour and to pray at, at, at her tomb, which was by then in, inside the basilica. So that's number one. And then as a, a successor of Archbishop Bailey, uh, his example of love and devotion for her and his trust in the power of her prayer um, certainly uh, inspires me as, as, as I go along. And, and I often find myself praying for her because um, you know, she was, uh, you know, Archbishop Carroll had this tremendous role of bringing her into the church and this role of uh, um, encouraging her when she opened up uh, uh, the little school here in Baltimore, mm -hmm. the yeah. little and the little house uh, near the seminary in Pakistry. And then, of course, uh, making the big move to Emmitsburg. So, yes, a lot of inspiration there. Yeah, I would almost say that now knowing so much more about the bishops of Baltimore throughout time, including James Roosevelt Bailey, it would seem that there is there is almost a familial connection between Elizabeth Ann Seton and the Episcopate of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I've, I've yeah. definitely seen that in your ministry and through many of the bishops through history, I think, I think she has probably a special intercession for the bishops of Baltimore. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that very much so. And when you think about it, uh, about um, how her cause was supported mm -hmm. um, by the archbishops of Baltimore from Gibbons forward. Yeah. Uh, I think that that would make a, that would be a very interesting study to go into the archives because I'm sure you would find correspondence from every archbishop of Baltimore, uh, right through Archbishop Borders, who was, of course, the archbishop uh, when the great moment happened. Yeah, that uh, would be right. It was really, really, right at the time of the transition from 
Cardinal Sheehan to Archbishop mm -hmm. orders. Yeah, that's a great idea. Put it on my list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We may call you again for help with that. <laughs> well, I, I better take another trip to the archive. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, I just have one last question. So, how is um, Bailey, your dog? Yeah, Joey? your dog. <laughs> Was a it, dog lover? So, <laughs> is your dog named after Archbishop Bailey? No, any any resemblance is uh, strictly coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> Bailey is not meant to uh, uh, to uh, depict any person, living or dead. <laughs> but Bailey is fine. Bailey is is uh, um, five years old, and oh he's uh, there's a, a lot of puppy in him yet. Oh, that's great. Uh, but he's at a nice age where he is mellow. He knows the routine. Mm -hmm. He knows what's on limits, what's off limits. And of course, I I know that nonetheless, if I leave something delicious <laughs> on the kitchen counter, he will steal it, <laughs> no matter what I say. So he's uh, he's he's a wonderful companion, and he makes this uh, this house where Archbishop Bailey, in fact, lived. Um, he makes it um, a, a nice home. Oh, that's so that, awesome. that's so heartwarming. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, that's the great thing about this house. Um, we have two portraits of Archbishop Bailey here. Oh. Both of them were done by Patrick Augustus Healy. Uh, Healy was a presidential portrait artist of the 19th oh, wow. century. And we have one more Healy than the White House does, actually. Wow. Uh, or so I'm told. That's what Cardinal Keeler always pointed out. <laughs> I think Cardinal Keeler's, uh, uh, Cardinal Keeler was a great historian. He had just, I, just tremendous knowledge of the uh, history of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. But, um, but uh, there's two of them. One of, and they're both, um, they're both uh, hanging right in the house. One is a larger picture. It's a little more in the 19th century style, you mm -hmm. know, where they, mm -hmm. they, it's a little grander looking with a bit of a background. Sure. And the other one is simply like a headshot. But awesome. they, they both bring them, uh, kind of bring him uh, uh, to life. Oh, and so I, I think of him often, of course. That's lovely. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. This was great. I love listening to stories about people and their connection to Mother Seaton. So this was beautiful. Thank you. You're most welcome. And thanks for doing this. Oh, sure. I hope you listen to the podcast yeah. in your copious free time. <laughs> well, I'll make a point of it. I, uh, I'll, look, I'll look forward to doing that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Okay. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye.